Good afternoon. This uh, hearing will come to order. I want to first thank our uh, expert witness panel. Uh, your testimony was excellent, uh, very informative. Uh, we look forward to your oral testimony and answering of our questions. Uh, I want to apologize to everybody for the, the late start to the hearing. We, we had a number of votes. Uh, as a result, uh, I'm just going to ask that my opening statement be entered in the record, and uh, we'll have a, a very uh, full conversation. So uh, I'll be able to make my points uh, during question and answers. But with that, I'll quick turn it over to uh, Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm also happy to submit my opening comments for the record and look forward to the testimony of both our panels. Well, thank you, and uh, Ambassador Volker has agreed to uh, give his opening testimony and then uh, slide over and, and give, let the other uh, panelists, uh, other witnesses, give their testimony, then we'll open up to questions. So uh, we'll start with our, our first witness, Ambassador Colt Volker. is the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine Negotiations Executive Director of the McCain Institute for International Leadership. Ambassador Volker was a career member of the U.S. Senior Foreign Service with over 23 years of experience working on European policy under five U.S. administrations. His postings include Ambassador to NATO and Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Ambassador Volker has previously served as Acting Senior Director for European and Eurasian Affairs at the National Security Council and as Deputy Director of the Private Office of then NATO Secretary General Lord Robertson. Ambassador Volker. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Senators, for the opportunity to testify today. Um, I also have a statement that I would like entered for the record, if I may. And I'll just try to speak a little bit candidly with you about the situation uh, in Ukraine. Uh, first off, it's uh, an honor for me to be here, and again, I appreciate that. Uh, second, I want to thank you, for uh, all of you, senators from both sides of the aisle, for your commitment and dedication to Ukraine. It is critically important. And uh, if I may, let me just say a few words about why that matters, uh, where Ukraine is today, and a few suggestions looking forward. Uh, concerning why Ukraine matters, uh, let's, I think most importantly, we start with the people. Uh, Ukrainians are people who seek and deserve freedom, democracy, market economy, rule of law, and security, just like other people in Europe. Uh, the United States has led the development of NATO and a strong NATO for decades. The European Union has also helped build a strong, prosperous, free, secure Europe. And there's no reason why Ukraine or others in the region who are not part of that now should not be part of that. Uh, they have very much the same values and very much the same aspirations. So the first thing is the people. The second is that they are a country that is fighting a war of self-defense. Uh, they have been attacked, their territory has been seized, the fighting continues to go on, and they are in need of support. And it's important that we support them on the merits of that alone, and also because we want to make sure that we are not allowing a Europe uh, to um, be taken apart through the use of military force. If we go back to the Helsinki Principles of 1975, which the Soviet Union supported at the time, we're talking about no changing of borders by force, no threat or use of force, no coercion. Countries have the right to choose their own security orientations and so forth. Uh, that is, those are principles that we need to continue to uphold. If we don't do so in Ukraine, we run the risk that we will be seeing them uh, challenged across Europe, and that would be dangerous for all of us. Uh, if we don't invest in security today, we will pay for the lack of security tomorrow. Now, where we are today, um, Ukraine is really in the balance. As you know, they've just had a presidential election. 
Uh, President Zelensky was elected with 73% of the popular vote, and he came out of nowhere coming into this. So he has zero seats in the parliament. And so Ukraine has gone to early parliamentary elections, and his major task, the number one thing he has before him right now, is to take that 73% public support and convert it into actual votes for his program in the Rada. So that is his political challenge at the moment. In the course of his campaign, he promised substantial, massive reform of everything from corruption to the economy, political systems, judiciary, and that's what the Ukrainian people voted for. So with 73% of the public voting for him, he also generated very high expectations of what policies he would pursue as president. Now let me take a minute and say that I believe that President Poroshenko also did an excellent job in promoting reforms in Ukraine over the past four years, probably more accomplished in the last four years than the preceding 20. But what we saw in this election was that the Ukrainian people wanted even more. They wanted to go faster, further, more aggressively, and that's what President Zelensky has promised. Uh, I believe it's important that we support those policies and those principles. And as long as he is willing to continue to advance that agenda, he deserves as much of our support as we can give him. Uh, I believe that um, he has a few other important challenges ahead of him. One of them is amassing the political capital to carry out real reform. Another is that a lot of the power structures in, in Ukraine are behind the scenes in the form of oligarchs who control a lot of economic assets, control the media, and it's going to be very difficult for him to take on that system. But ultimately, taking on that system is what is exactly essential for Ukraine to break free of its past and uh, take advantage of the natural resources, the great human capital, its position as a, as a country of potential phenomenal growth uh, within Europe. Uh, it has to to do that. I'd also say that uh, since he's become president, of course, everyone is putting their oar in the water to try to influence the outcome in Ukraine, whether that's the Russians, whether that's the oligarchs, whether that's reformers. We've seen an increase in Russian uh, media propaganda and presence in the Ukrainian media over the past few weeks. Um, these are all areas of concern and another reason why it's important that we support Zelensky as much as we can. Concerning U.S. policy, uh, we have, over the past few years, engaged in a significant strengthening of U.S. policy. I would argue that we have gone from a period in which time appeared to be on Russia's side to a time in which time now appears to be on Ukraine's side, as they are more unified, uh, more of a strong national identity, uh, more pro-Western, more pro-European, more pro-NATO, more Russia skeptic than ever before as a country. And that's giving Ukraine a resilience as they go through this period that I think uh, will serve them well for the long term. And in addition, we have worked very hard to keep Western policy unified and strong. Uh, we and the EU have both maintained sanctions and increased sanctions. The U.S. has lifted the ban on lethal arms sales to Ukraine, and that has gone uh, uh, through with uh, the acceptance of our European allies as well. We've strengthened the armed forces. Uh, just today, we are announcing how we are dealing with an additional $125 million in support for Ukraine's military that the Congress approved, so we're grateful for that. Um, so we have maintained a much stronger position. I believe we have a sustainable position. If what Russia wants is a Ukraine that is once again part of a Russian sphere of influence, a greater Russian empire, I believe that opportunity is lost because the Ukrainian people will never go back there. Uh, what we also have done 
is make sure that we have a hand outreached to work together with Russia to end this conflict if Russia wishes to do that. Thus far, uh, we have not seen any indication from Russia that they do want to do that. And in fact, they remain in denial about their responsibility. They actually lead the military forces in the Donbas. They pay for the contract soldiers that are there. They handpick the civil administrations. They pay for those civil administrations. They provide the intelligence services. Uh, so this is 100% Russian controlled. And yet Russia denies their involvement and instead says that this is a uh, internal Ukrainian matter, uh, which we know not to be the case. Um, we have continued to insist that Russia release the sailors that it seized in November in international waters. We have urged them to pursue a longer-term ceasefire. I have reached out recently to my Russian counterpart to ask whether they believe it is time to get together and see whether we can make any progress. Certainly, in my consultations with you in Ukraine, uh, with the French and Germans, uh, we believe there is an opportunity to move ahead again, or at least it's worth a try. Uh, but we need to know whether Russia wants to take this seriously and see such an opportunity as well or not. Thus far, we don't see any indication of that. Uh, uh, in terms of outreach to President Zelensky, I stressed that this is critically important. Uh, I think that the future of Ukraine over the next five years is going to be shaped in the next three months. How this election comes out, how President Zelensky assembles a government, and whether he is able to operate independently and in charge as president of Ukraine without undue influence of any individuals or oligarchs in Ukraine will be absolutely critical. And it is important that he know that he has the full support of the United States and Europe in doing so. We have reached out significantly. Secretary Pompeo called uh, the candidate Zelensky and also then President Poroshenko on the eve of the elections. President Trump called to congratulate President Zelensky on the night of the election. Uh, as you know, uh, Senator, you took part in a presidential delegation along with Secretary Perry, myself, and our EU Ambassador Gordon Sunland to uh, be there for the inauguration. We had a lengthy meeting with President Zelensky then. Since then, President Trump has written to President Zelensky, has indicated that he is uh, welcoming him for a visit to the White House at a time yet to be agreed. We hope that is soon. Uh, and we have remained engaged uh, in a number of ways. Uh, our EU ambassador hosted President Zelensky uh, for a dinner in, in Brussels. And he has also made the rounds in Europe and is in fact in Berlin today and was in Paris yesterday. So we are reaching out in a variety of ways and I hope that we're able to assemble another trip to Ukraine in advance of his White House visit uh, in the next several weeks. Um, finally, I do want to put one point out there. It's very important that we not forget about the people of the Donbas. Um, they are living through a war on their territory uh, of a pre-war population of about four million. It's down to about a million and a half to two million. Uh, they are dealing with all kinds of privations, whether it is threats to water supply, a collapsed economy, environmental degradation, pressure on the healthcare system, lack of freedom of movement, and particular difficulty in crossing boundary crossings between the occupied area and the rest of Ukraine, uh, outages of electricity, outages of cell phone service, which is a vital means of communication. So it is a grinding, awful situation for the people in the Donbass. They need as much support as the Ukrainian government can give them and as we can give them. And ultimately, that's why we need to keep a spotlight on this issue as you are doing with this hearing, uh, because we can't forget about those people, even though uh, we see a very difficult situation in terms of resolving this conflict going ahead 
ultimately what we seek, uh, and this has been U.S. policy for as long as I've been involved, is uh, the restoration of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and the safety and security of all Ukrainian citizens, regardless of ethnicity, uh, nationality, or religion. And with that, Senator, I'll end my uh, remarks, and I look forward to the question and answer. Thank you. Well, again, thank you, Ambassador Volker, for, first of all, your, your past service and your future service as it relates to uh, Ukraine. Uh, we'll call up the other witnesses right now. Um, uh, while we're happening, just, or while that's happening, just a couple comments. I, mean, I really do believe that Ukraine is just ground zero in this geopolitical conflict between Russia and the United States. And we are really here in support of the Ukrainian people. Uh, this has been, I think, a, a real demonstration of bipartisan support. Uh, I keep pointing out to our European partners uh, the extraordinary nature of the fact that on a unanimous basis we approve lethal defensive weaponry. I mean, that's a really big deal and just demonstrates that, that support. And final comment before we, we go to additional opening statements is I did meet with uh, delegation from their Foreign Affairs Committee, and I did express to them my concern that if there's conflict between the legislative branch and, and the new president, that's just not good from the standpoint of maintaining strong, unanimous support here in Congress. They have it now. They can maintain it as long as they work together as patriots uh, for the benefit of Ukraine. And so that's what I think we all need to encourage. That's kind of the, the support that we need to give. But again, I want to welcome our, our next witnesses. Our, our first witness we'll go to is Ambassador John Herbst. Ambassador Herbst is the director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Ambassador Herbst served for 31 years as a Foreign Service Officer in the Department of State, retiring, from the rank, retiring with the rank of Career Minister. He was Ambassador to Ukraine from 2003 to 2006, and Ambassador to Uzbekistan from 2000 to 2003. He is a recipient of the Presidential Distinguished Service Award, the Secretary of State's Career Achievement Award, and the State Department's Distinguished Honor Award, Ambassador Herbst. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Johnson and Senator Shaheen. Um, it's an honor to be here today. I know you want to save time. I'm, I'm tempted to say, you heard what Kurt said, I agree. Uh, but we're here to talk about one of the most critical issues on the international agenda today, the Kremlin's war against Ukraine and Ukraine's efforts to reform and actually transform itself into a rule of law society closely aligned with Europe and the broader democratic world. We are in a period of great power conflict that pits the democratic world against revisionist authoritarians. Unfortunately, President Putin is challenging the world order. He claims a right to a sphere of influence in Russia's neighborhood. He seeks to weaken NATO, the EU, and the US. And he has launched two wars against Georgia in 2008 and against Ukraine since 2014. The US has a vital interest in stopping Kremlin revisionism, and the place to do it is in Ukraine. Within the limits of Moscow's operations in Donbass, Kiev has fought the world's second most powerful military to a standstill. I came back Saturday from five days in Ukraine with General David Petraeus. He was impressed by what he saw. We met most of the new leadership, including the Army Chief of Staff Homchak, visited the Ukrainian commanders at the front, and the troops at Avdiivka along the line of contact with the Russians. There are 2,500 Russian military officers leading the Kremlin war in Donbass, and they have at their disposal over 450 tanks and 700 pieces of artillery. That's very serious hardware. Despite the two Minsk ceasefires, there's not been a day of peace since Moscow's aggression began in uh, the spring of 2014. Less than 18 hours after we left the front, Russian artillery hit a residential building in Mar Marinka, wounding four civilians. Over 13,000 Ukrainians have died in this war, 
Moscow hopes that its constant pressure on Ukraine will force the government to, to stop building a democratic and open society oriented to the West. So far, the Kremlin is not succeeding. An important reason for Moscow's failure is that it has two vulnerabilities, a weak, weak economy based on hydrocarbon exports, and also the Russian people have clearly stated that they do not want Russian forces fighting in Ukraine. The first means that Moscow is susceptible to economic pressure. The second means that Putin must hide his casualties and keep them to a minimum because his Russian, the Russian people do not want Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. This makes it possible for the West to help Ukraine and at low cost, especially compared to, say, the cost of defending or even deterring Russian aggression against our Baltic allies. Western, Western sanctions impose a real cost on Russia's economy. 1 to 1.5% of GDP growth a year is lost because of the sanctions. And Western military support, especially advanced weapons like the Javelins, nullify Moscow's tank advantage. I salute President Trump for his courage in sending the Javelins to Ukraine. The U.S. should consider sending more javelins to Ukraine, also sending more counter-battery radar for missiles. These radar reduce Ukrainian casualties. The U.S. should also provide shore radar, Mark V speedboats, and anti-ship harpoon missiles, which will help Ukraine to deter Kremlin provocations at sea, which we have seen increasingly over the past 18 months. Western support for Ukraine has been substantial and essential, but has not been agile as effective as it could be. Part of that is due to the reluctance on part of some members of the EU. Chancellor Merkel deserves credit for maintaining EU sanctions on Russia, but Moscow is constantly seeking ways to increase the pressure on Ukraine. And it has found a new mechanism. Starting in the spring of 2018, it began an inspection regime of ships heading to Ukraine's ports in the Sea of Azov. As a result of this inspection regime, shipping from Donbass, Ukraine, has dropped by anywhere from 33 to 50%, imposing major economic costs, new economic costs on Ukraine. In November last year, Russian ships attacked and seized three Ukrainian ships. They've uh, imprisoned the 24 sailors. No sanctions were imposed for the inspection system on Ukrainian ships, and U.S. sanctions for the incident at the Straits of Kerch came late and were weak. Congress has played a major role in sanctions policy. It should consider sanctioning a major Russian bank, such as Gazprom Bank or Vnyeshekhanom Bank. The Senate has introduced legislation, the Defending American Security from Kremlin Aggression Act of 2019. This could be a vehicle for strengthening our sanctions policy. The U.S. should also be able to persuade Germany and the EU to drop the Nord Stream 2 project a pipeline that will allow the Kremlin to bypass Ukraine and exert geopolitical leverage over the nations of Eastern Europe. Chancellor Merkel has asked for the Kremlin to guarantee a substantial flow of gas through Ukrainian pipeline, even as Nord Stream 2 is built. But numerous statements by Russian officials as high as Prime Minister Medvedev have cast this problem into doubt. Uh, with this in mind, Congress and the U.S. should consider sanctions on companies providing the high-tech necessary to complete the project. This needs to be managed very carefully since U.S.-German cooperation has been vital for overall sanctions policy. But it is hard to imagine Nord Stream 2 proceeding if it permits Moscow to shut out Ukraine as a, trans as a gas transporter. Moscow has also been active trying to influence political developments in Ukraine, including in the recent Ukrainian presidential election. The Atlantic Council, in partnership with the Pinchuk Foundation and the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity, set up an election, Ukraine Election Task Force to monitor Kremlin disinformation, cyber, and military operations. 
Our task force found substantial Russian disinformation and cyber attacks, but there was little success. Moscow was pleased that Poroshenko lost the election, but they have been skeptical about new President Zelensky, whose deft response to Putin's passport provocation put Putin on a rare public defensive. Moscow is now busy trying to undermine Ukraine's upcoming parliamentary elections. President Zelensky has two great battles to win, against Kremlin aggression and against domestic interest impeding fundamental reform. With assistance from the United States and the EU, he can win both battles. Congress should continue to do its part in providing that assistance. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Herbst. Our next witness is Dr. Alina Polyakova. Uh, Dr. Polyakova is director of the Project on Global Democracy and Emergency Technology at the Brookings Institution and an adjunct professor of European Studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Dr. Polyakova specializes in Russian foreign policy, European populism, and U.S.-Russian-Europe relations and is a frequent contributor to many major media outlets. Previously, she was a director of research and senior fellow for Europe and Eurasia, Eurasia at the Atlantic Council. Dr. Polykova. So thank you, Sir, uh, Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Shaheen, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. It is an honor and privilege to address you today in this important issue. Thank you for inviting me to speak. I, I could also just shorten my comments and say that I agree with everything that Ambassador Walker and Ambassador Harris have just said. But in the interest of laying out a broader picture, I won't do that. Uh, Ukraine remains a key arena of contestation between Russia and the West. An unstable Ukraine means a Europe that is less secure and less able to defend itself from future threats. For these reasons, the United States must continue to support Ukraine's democratic path, its Euro-Atlantic future, and its ability to defend itself. Deterrence of an increasingly aggressive Russia must start in Ukraine. The Kremlin seeks to keep Ukraine in a so-called permanent gray zone. To do so, Russia continues to destabilize Ukraine through conventional and non-conventional means. Today, I'm going to focus my oral comments on Russia's non-conventional warfare against Ukraine, Ukraine's progress and challenges and reforms, and what the U.S. should do to ensure Ukraine's continued progress. But one comment on the, non on the conventional threat Russia continues to occupy and militarize Crimea's, uh, Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. It's important to note that over the last 18 months, we've seen a steady and significant buildup in Russian military capabilities in Crimea and the surrounding waters. Beginning in January 2017, Russia began deploying S-400 surface-to-air missile systems to Crimea. Since then, uh, there have been at least five known S-400 armed battalions uh, positioned in Crimea. This means that with the S-400 presence, in addition to other capabilities um, on land and surrounding water, Russia de facto has military dominance over the Azov Sea and the entire Black Sea region. And this is something we must pay attention to from our national security interests. Ukraine has long been a test lab for Russia's growing arsenal of political warfare. This includes information warfare, cyber attacks, and the use of energy supplies to exert political pressure. And while Russian interference in Western election may have surprised many, Russia has a very long track record of intervening in Ukraine's elections since at least 2004, the Orange Revolution. Ukraine's experience is thus a bellwether for assessing the Russian tactics that may be deployed here in the United States or against our allies. For example, ahead of Ukraine's most recent presidential elections, the Russian media spread disinformation claiming that Ukraine's candidates were US puppets, uh, and that the election systems were controlled by Ukraine's intelligence agencies, 
among other colorful disinformation campaigns. In a new and worrying tactic, a Russian operator confessed to being tasked with identifying Ukrainians who would be willing to quote-unquote rent out their Facebook accounts for the spread of disinformation. Russian information warfare does not stop when the ballot box closes. While Ukraine remains Russia's top target, Russian disinformation, especially in the digital domain, is an ongoing threat to democracies, including the democracy of the United States. In the cyber front, there have been at least 15 known Russian-attributed cyber attacks on Ukraine since 2014. A 2015 cyber attack caused a blackout affecting over 230,000 Ukrainians. The malware used in that attack has been identified by the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security as present in the electrical utilities in the United States. What happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine. Further, Russia has continued to aggressively use natural gas as a tool of political warfare. The current gas transit contract between Ukraine and Russia expires at the end of this calendar year. This raises concern that with the negotiations stalled of a potential gas crisis this coming January that could also affect supplies to Europe. Nord Stream 2 is part of Russia's political warfare against Ukraine. When completed, the pipeline will allow Russia to circumvent Ukraine as a transit route for Europe-bound natural gas. However, it's important to know that in addition to what Ambassador Herbst has laid out, Nord Stream 2 has a military and security objective. Currently, the line of contact in the Donbas tracks almost perfectly with the gas transit pipelines in Ukraine. This means that Ukraine's gas pipelines are de facto acting as a deterrent and further Russian military aggression. Without Russian gas flowing through those pipelines, that deterrent will also disappear. Despite Russia's continued aggression against Ukraine, Kiev has made significant strides on reforms. Most significantly, uh, Ukraine has reformed its energy sector, set up anti-corruption infrastructure, and cleaned up the banking se sector. Taken together, it's estimated these reforms have returned up to $6 billion in annual revenue to Ukraine. Still, it's important to know that Ukraine's new president inherits an embattled anti-corruption institution structure. For example, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, the so-called NABU, is meant to investigate high-level corruption, but convictions remain elusive because Ukraine has failed to reform its judicial sector. This must be the priority for this new administration and the incoming parliament. Until the Ukrainian government makes a serious effort to tackle corruption, it will remain a vulnerability the Kremlin will continue to exploit. And while with their votes, Ukrainians have closed the door to the east, they must still work to keep the door to the west open. The United States has led the international effort to help Ukraine defend itself. This legislative body has consistently authorized hundreds of millions in military aid to Ukraine. These funds and related programs have gone a long way to secure Ukraine's sovereignty. On sanctions, since 2014, the U.S. government has sanctioned at least 762 individuals and entities under the combined authorities uh, afforded to the administration. This is a significant number. Sanctions against Russian entities and individuals should continue to be a core tool of U.S. strategy to deter further Russian aggression. But it's critical that future sanctions, especially those against Russian energy companies, be coordinated with our European allies. And sanctions should only be one part of a broader U.S. strategy. In addition, the United States should, 
continue to put pressure on Kiev to institute judicial anti-corruption reforms, remain steadfast in the conditionality of our assistance, together with the EU and international partners, should continue high-level bilateral engagement with the Ukrainian government, I would hope to see a visit from President Zelensky in Washington in the near future. We should increase U.S. investment in countering Russian influence in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and support independent media and civil society in doing so. Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine has assured Ukraine's Western orientation. The Kremlin has lost the Ukrainian people. But as Ukraine's new government forms, Kiev will need continued international support led by the United States, and it will also need commitment to its territorial integrity and uh, a resolve to impose additional costs on Russia for its escalatory behavior. Ukraine cannot be permanently relegated to the gray zone. Moscow sees a successful democratic Ukraine as a threat to President Vladimir Putin's authoritarian regime. It is in Russia's interest to see Ukraine's democratic and economic reforms fail, and therefore it should be our mission to ensure that they do not. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Polyakova. Our final witness is Dr. James Carfano. Dr. Carfano is Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institution, Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. A 25-year-old, 25-year Army veteran, Dr. Carfano served in Europe and South Korea, retiring with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. He's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and visiting professor at the National Defense University. Dr. Carfano's recent research has focused on developing the national security required to secure the long-term interests of the United States, protecting the public, providing for economic growth and preserving civil liberties. Dr. Carfano. Thank you, Senator. So this is a little unusual. I have two thank yous. First of all, I want to thank the subcommittee for holding an incredibly important hearing on an issue that's very important in the United States. But I think we should all thank Kurt Volker for his service. It's been extraordinary in his continued service for the country in this matter. It really is. Really, I, agree. I think we should all. Right. So I, 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 had, I made five points in uh, my statement for the record, which I won't read. Um, one is to talk about the importance of the bilateral relationship and why we should care about the Ukraine. The second was to stress, which I don't think we can do this emphatically enough, that the problem is Putin, that his policies are the chief destabilizing threat in the region, and we should never lose focus on sight on that. The third is to emphasize what everyone on the panel has already mentioned, which is the importance of early and really active engagement with the new presidency. Um, also, though, to, to focus on the, the broader regional engagement in the United States on how many of the things going on outside Ukraine are really important to the success of the Ukraine. And finally, to mention something that I think is really important, which is not just to keep the door for NATO membership open for the Ukraine, but that the United States should lead through that door. And let me, if I could just briefly emphasize two of those points, um, why the U.S.-U.K. relationship is so important, and on the importance of regional engagement and, and NATO. The United States is a global power with global interests and global responsibilities. To exercise that, we've got to connect to the rest of the world. And the three most important pieces of the world that do that are Europe, the Middle East, and the Indo-Pacific. So it's our vital interest that those parts of the world are at peace and prosperous. And our alliances, our relationships are the key to doing that. I think often overlooked in that, and particularly in regard to Western Europe, is the role of small states. Not that Ukraine's small, but small in comparison in population and power to um, some of the other bigger states in Europe. But small states are critical for three reasons. One is, they often, it, often it's not how big they are, but where they are. And their geopolitical position is crucial. And I think that's definitely true for the Ukraine, which is part of this, I think, vital backbone between Europe and Russia that has to be 
stable and coherent, uh, both uh, politically, economically, but also geographically. Um, the second is, is our alliances in Western Europe are built on the principle of collective defense. And collective defense is the choice of countries to decide their future and who they choose to partner with in their future to secure that. Um, keeping the door open for countries that want to join that alliance, I think is incredibly important, and certainly in the case of Ukraine. And the third is, is at the end of the day, small nations can actually be net contributors to collective defense. We have that case in a number of question countries within NATO, and there's no doubt in my mind that a successful, peaceful, and prosperous Ukraine is going to be a positive net contributor to collective security in the West. Um, the second point is, is the larger regional engagement of the United States in Europe and how important that is to the future of the Ukraine. We've mentioned the concerns about Nord Stream 2, which I fully share. Um, there are other issues in which the U.S. is engaged with, which are important in the future of Ukraine. The Three Seas Initiative is one. It's an important series of energy projects that the fruition of which will improve the entire region, uh, not just in energy, but in terms of regional economic integration and economic growth. It's important for the United States to strongly support that. I mentioned in my testimony the importance of pro a better U.S. Uh, pardon me, better Ukrainian-Hungarian relationships and how the United States plays an important role there. Um, also implied is, is the broader issue of Black Sea security. That's a regional challenge, and having that successful is not just, that also has an impact on the Ukraine. Um, and finally, I just want to mention briefly the importance of not just keeping the door open for Ukrainian membership to NATO, but that the United States leads toward that door. I think now that North Macedonia is essentially off the table, um, it's time for a discussion about the next round of NATO enlargement. And I think North Macedonia not only kind of cleared the table, it also taught us a really important lesson, that countries can figure out really complex, difficult problems, and in the, for their own collective security, figure out a path forward. And I think that should make us optimistic about the future of NATO enlargement. I also think um, in the case of Georgia, we have a case study in how you can move forward on NATO membership despite a, a fact that a portion of your country is occupied by another country. My colleague, Luke Coffey, has written on this extensively on how within the existing charter, membership for Georgia is certainly realistic. And I think that sets a precedence for Ukraine. And I think the most important point is Vladimir Putin cannot have a veto on who gets to join NATO by simply occupying a piece of somebody else's country. Um, I look forward to your questions. Thank you again. Again, thank you all for your testimony. Um, as we work our way through this, one thing I would like to uh, have as a conclusion of this hearing is a list of priorities and, and, and literally prioritize. I mean, these, this is the first thing we need to focus on, second, third, fourth, and fifth. Uh, I just want to quick start the question. I was, I was heartened by, I should probably get up on my uh, news report, Merkel uh, will only lift Russian sanctions if Ukraine's sovereignty is restored. And, and mentioned Crimea in that statement as well. I thought that was a pretty good sign. But can, in one of your testimonies, you talked about how Nord Stream 2 literally was not economic. It was all about geopolitics. Can, can you first of all explain, because it, it does not make sense, what, what Germany is doing there, uh, why you would give that kind of uh, economic power, geopolitical power to Russia. Can, can somebody just kind of walk through what the rationale is of, you know, from the Germans' perspective, what we possibly can do, you know, the harm it will, it will create to Ukraine? Uh, 
the argument by those in Germany who want Nord Stream 2, because it's not everybody, is that they want to build pipeline capacity because more pipeline capacity means more energy security. Uh, the argument against Nord Stream 2 is that, um, first of all, it's economically expensive. You're building at a whole new capacity when Nord Stream, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is not fully used and you have this large Ukrainian pipeline system. Uh, a Russian bank, Vnesh Ekonom Bank, had a report on its website for a week or so which argued that Nord Stream 2 was not in the economic interests of Russia for the reasons I've just described. Uh, it did say it was in the economic interest of Putin's cronies who were building Nord Stream 2 and getting Russian contracts. But more importantly, from our point of view, Nord Stream 2 gives Moscow the ability to deliver all the gas it has to Europe, bypassing not just Ukraine, but all the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, which means that they can play coercive gas diplomacy with Ukraine, with Belarus, with Poland, as they have a number of times over the past 10 years. And Alina mentioned another very good point, which is that the current Ukrainian pipeline system, which ships Russian gas, is vulnerable to Russian military operations in East and Central Ukraine. So this is another deterrence on Kremlin military activity. So again, I think you mentioned, Ambassador Herbst, is how crucial Germany is to keep this coalition together, make sure sanctions are maintained. Um, how, how do we deal with this? Well, why, why, why is Germany doing this, and, and, and what can we do to stop for, it? I know you have some suggestions on for, effective sanctions. For, for starters, uh, the Social Democrats in Germany traditionally have been rather soft, soft in their approach to Moscow, and they are 100% in favor of this project, and of course there's the peculiar circumstances of the former Chancellor of Germany working for Mr. Putin on precisely this project and other gas matters. So that, that's point one. Point two, there are German businessmen who will benefit from this project. Uh, but it's also true, and this is something which doesn't come up in the conversation that much, that there is serious opposition to Nord Stream 2, first in the Green Party in Germany, and also in Chancellor Merkel's own party. Uh, there's also serious opposition to this within the EU. The EU Commission, by and large, is not favorably disposed towards this project. At least 13 EU nations have written against this project, and they believe that Nord Stream 2, it's working through the EU, has been imposed by Germany, completely inconsistent with the third energy package of the EU and inconsistent with the concept of consensus within the EU. Um, I, in my testimony, focused on the specific, I would say, kind of condition that Chancellor Merkel herself has advocated, that the Kremlin, as part of the Nord Stream 2 deal, should guarantee that a large flow of gas will continue through Ukraine's pipelines. But senior Kremlin officials, led by Medvedev himself, the prime minister, have cast doubt on it. And numerous times over the past several months, Russian officials and Russian gas uh, people in the gas industry, have warned Central and Western European powers that gas flow through Ukraine will cease on December 31st of this year. So they are, in effect, sticking their fingers in Chancellor Merkel's eyes, but we have not seen a response yet from, from the German leadership. So Ambassador Volker is 
the point person in terms of trying to negotiate with Russia and our European partners. You know, there's a bill here that would impose sanctions on those companies that are you know, building the pipeline. What do you believe we should do? Uh, thank you very much. Um, I have been advised that uh, we don't comment on pending legislation uh, in the Senate, so I will avoid from commenting on the specific legislation. However, let me join uh, you and, and Ambassador Herbst and Alina in saying that the clear motivation behind the Nord Stream project is to increase Russia's influence over Europe and division of Europe. And there are many countries in Europe that are as concerned about this as we are. Uh, so you, you can look in Central and Eastern Europe, you can look at some West European countries. This is not a, a uniformly uh, welcome development. For the past decade or so, maybe even a little more, uh, Europe has been on a trajectory of increasing its independence, it decreasing its reliance on Russian gas as part of the mix in, uh, in Europe. This project actually reverses that trend. So the motivation behind the legislation that is pending is clearly to try to stop that development, stop the, the, um, the re-increase of dependence on Russian gas from uh, both the source and the hard means of supply, and I think we we agree with that um, with the thrust of that legislation. So, so again, let me ask it this way: If if sanctions were imposed on those companies building the pipeline, would that complicate your job? Not at all. Uh, it, uh, in that respect, uh, I think everyone knows that there there are many issues out here, but the fundamental issue is one of uh, Russia knowing exactly what it's doing in fighting in eastern Ukraine and trying to use that to gain political leverage over Kiev. The Germans know that. The French know that. We talk about this very openly. Um, we have differences of view over Nord Stream, but we fundamentally agree on where the, the issues lie with Russia. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all very much for being here today and for your testimony. As has been pointed out, one of the main tools that the United States and the EU have used against uh, Russia has been sanctions. So can you comment on how effective those sanctions have been um, in addressing Russians' behavior, and have they done anything to help resolve the Ukraine conflict or to restrain Russian aggression? Um, I can start, perhaps, uh, Senator. Uh, so as uh, all of us mentioned in our testimonies, I believe, uh, it is estimated that the U.S. sanctions uh, with the combination of European sanctions have cost uh, the Russian economy between 1% and 1.5% annually. Um, however, the Russians have adapted to this new reality. Uh, in my view, the, the greatest message uh, sent by the sanctions regime is one of transatlantic unity and resolve against an increasingly aggressive Russia. It's for that reason why I strongly believe the sanctions should be coordinated with our European allies and also uh, with our other allies, Canada, Australia, um, most notably, because that sends the message to the Kremlin that there will be consequences for increased escalation. Um, there's an argument to be made, however, which I believe maybe my colleagues would disagree with, uh, that in terms of changing behavior on the ground, sanctions have not achieved that. Um, yet, targeted sanctions against specific Russian individuals, which has been the tact the U.S. has pursued in more, most recent sanctions rounds, I think have been very, very effective in uh, sh sending a clear message that there, are, will be, that there will be consequences for increasing escalatory behavior. Um, so I will stop there. I, I agree 
that the sanctions have not persuaded Moscow to cease its aggression in Ukraine, but they have been a reason for Moscow not escalating, and that's very important. But there's a second, to my mind, very important reason for the sanctions. The economic cost is real. Over time, this will have a major impact on Russian economic production. They cannot sustain a world-class military with a third-world economy, and we are contributing to their economic problems. And if they're going to pursue a revisionist foreign policy, it's in our interest that their economy not be able to sustain a world-class military indefinitely. Um, well, I certainly agree with that, and you know that's why I'm sponsoring the DASCA sanctions. But do we have any estimates about how long they can continue to operate with this kind of a hit to the economy? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the answer is forever, because that's the nature of authoritarian regimes, is they have the capacity well, to, to redirect resources as they see fit. Let me, let me rephrase that. Um, how long they can continue with this kind of a hit to support the military and the buildup in the way that they have been? I, I think the answer is still the same. indefinitely. But, but I, I think the point is that which the, my co-panelists made is, is, one is understand the purpose of sanctions. It's a very unlikely an authoritarian regime that sanctions are going to change behavior. The purpose of sanctions is to punish behavior, and I think that has been uh, extraordinarily effective. But a sanction is a tool just like a tank is a tool. So a tank isn't a strategy. A tank is effective in driving across Europe in World War II because it's done in the context of a whole bunch of things. And so when we look at sanctions, we should never have just a discussion like, are the sanctions achieving our strategic end state, but are the sanctions contributing to the overall strategy? And our overall strategy is to, the goal is to end Russia's destabilizing influence in Western Europe. And I do think that the combination of the sanctions with punish and bring together solidarity and the military deterrence of of the strong NATO presence and working on um, energy security for Western Europe and others, together, I think it it makes perfect sense. And taking the sanctions away would be like having a table and taking one of the legs away and expecting it to still not fall over. So this may be a question for you, Ambassador Volker. As we look at where we are in the crisis with Ukraine, are the Minsk agreements still a way forward? Do you think they have any um, credibility at this point, or should we abandon those and look for another way forward? Right. Uh, well, thank you very much for that question. Let me add on the sanctions point that I, I agree with what James just said, that um, sanctions don't work until the day they do. So you keep them in place uh, for that reason. And in addition to that, um, um, you have, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Uh, Let's turn to Minsk. On Minsk, I think it's very important that the Minsk agreements stay in place because they are the most important means by which Russia formally recognizes the territorial integrity of Ukraine, even if in reality they don't. It is the basis on which the European Union keeps sanctions in place. Uh, And in addition, it is the framework that has everything in the bag, uh, everything on the table, if you will. Um, Ceasefire, withdrawal of heavy weapons, humanitarian access, 
uh, all of the things that are necessary for a solution. What's lacking in Minsk is the political will of uh, mm -hmm. Russia to actually implement it. As I said, they're denying that they have a responsibility in this. So I don't think it has outlasted its purpose. I think it serves a very important purpose. But what we have to do, and this comes back to the point I wanted to make, we have to get to the point where Russia makes a different decision. Sanctions is a part of a, a strategy. It's one piece among many that can add up to a decision in Russia that says, you know, it's not worth it. It's not working. And that's what I think we are really striving for through the combination of sanctions, through support for Ukrainian reform, anti-corruption, uh, support for the military. All of these things add up to making it more and more clear to Russia that their effort to resubordinate Ukraine to its sphere of influence is not going to work. So one of the things that we have done since 2017 is we have put in place legislation called the Women, Peace, and Security Act that s defines a strategy to include women at the table as we're looking at conflict negotiations. As we look ahead to a time when we hope there will be negotiations to end this conflict in Ukraine, how important is it to have women at the table in those negotiations? Ambassador Volker, you want to go first? I, would, I have a very... I can go first. I would like to say something on that, though, because when you visit the conflict area in eastern Ukraine, you meet almost uniquely with women. Um, the young men have all gone away because they don't want to be drafted into the military forces of the, of the Russians. Uh, young women have gone away because it's not safe. And uh, the people that are there are elderly and mostly women, and they're holding down the property so that they try to maintain some semblance of continuity for life in the future. I don't think there's a way to talk about peace and the restoration of normal life without women. I'll make one quick comment. In the context of Ukraine, uh, there was a, a women's militia group on the Maidan. Uh, women organized the, primarily women organized the delivery of food and other supplies to the front in the very early days when the Ukrainian military wasn't able to organize those kinds of logistics themselves. And they continued to be incredibly helpful in uh, resettling the IDPs. Uh, there's 1.5 million internally displaced people in Ukraine right now. Women play a very strong role in, in the communities and where those individuals end up. Um, and lastly, on a broader scope about women in conflict resolution, um, there are many studies that show that when there are more women at the table, um, you, you end up with a um, better negotiated solution at the end. So absolutely, I think it's absolutely critical. Can I, can I just say, Ruth, I was really pleased to see the administration come up with a strategy to actually implement the act. And Me too. When, and, when you, and when you look at that, you know, where, can, where can this actually work and be effective? You have to have a modicum of security, you have to have a modicum of civil society, and you have to have some capacity for economic growth to actually implement those kind of programs and make them happen. I think Ukraine is literally the poster child for where this kind of strategy ought to work. Thank you. So you're all in agreement. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for holding us this hearing. I was just thinking as I was hearing you talk about uh, the women in, in Ukraine, I was, I was there uh, last month and met with two of the strong women uh, from the previous administration. Um, and uh, one is the Minister of Health, who many of you know, Yulana Suprun, and the other was the Minister of, of Finance. Um, Oksana Marikova, and boy, two strong women who have uh, taken on some heroic reforms. Um, I'll leave it there, but um, 
You're absolutely right, Senator Shaheen. And women have played a, a, a key role in this, including uh, at the Maidan and, and since. And Mr. Chairman, thank you for holding this hearing. This is, this is really timely, and it's, it's wonderful to hear from a panel of experts, all of whom basically agree on the need for us to keep the pressure on and to help this fledgling country that's trying to do the right thing. Uh, thanks to some of my constituents back home. Some of you know we have a big uh, Ukrainian community in Ohio. I got involved in these issues early on, and right after the Maidan, within a few months I was over there, I could still see the scorch marks. In fact, you could still smell the burning rubber, and the encampment was still there, and I've uh, been back several times since, including meeting with President Zelensky last month, uh, which was, for me, very refreshing, actually. Um, I worked well with President Poroshenko, but uh, President Zelensky said something, and I've repeated this uh, since in the media. I, I don't talk about our specific conversation, but that I thought was telling. I congratulated him, of course, for winning 74% of the vote. I said that doesn't normally happen in the United States of America. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some of my colleagues have had votes like that, uh, but, but probably not. And his response wasn't, yes, you know, I ran a great campaign or, you know, we, were, we had all the, all, the, all the right things going on. He said, you know what, it, it's not about me. It's about a hunger for reform. And that's really important right now. Um, so as we talk about the importance of pushing back on the Russian aggression, we also have to talk about the importance of reform and transparency and fighting corruption. And, and I think uh, there's no question in my mind that he is personally committed to that and that he needs our help to be able to accomplish what, what he would like to do in terms of truly making this transition, looking to the West, a democratic country that's prosperous, uh, that, practices free enterprise and uh, pushes back on the corruption. So I'm, I'm encouraged. I was encouraged today when the Department of Defense announced uh, plans to provide Ukraine with an additional $250 million in security assistance. That's consistent with what we appropriated here, of course, and authorized. Um, that's $1.5 billion since 2014, which I raised with the President. I also raised that with uh, General Kamchak, who some of you have met with recently, I know. Um, and they appreciate it. They get it. I mean, this is my taxpayers taxpayers represented in this panel and around the Senate who have been willing to say, you know, we're going we're gonna to stand up uh, beside this country that wants to move uh, toward a more optimistic future and toward the West. And, and it is, in many respects, the example of, of what we all talk about in terms of the, the competition between us and Russia and, uh, and two different visions for, for the future. So. I'm pleased to say that the, uh, the aid that we authorized first in 2015 through legislation didn't actually happen until 2017 for lethal defensive aid is now there and more is coming. Uh, you'll see in the NDAA, this is the authorization bill we're about to vote on here in Congress, that there'll be additional uh, ideas expressed there. I won't talk about them in specifics because I know the chairman's still working through those, but I think all of us in this panel have probably been involved in helping to ensure we get the right aid there. And, Ambassador Volker, you've been involved in ensuring that, uh, you know, that we know what they want and what they need. And um, so um, my hope is that we'll have some good news here shortly. I, I was on the contact line uh, last year at a time when uh, the snipers were pretty active. And, you know, one of the things that I think most of my constituents don't realize is the degree to which it's still a hot war. And uh, so when I, you know, placed the wreath at the memorial uh, recently for the Ukrainians who have lost their lives there, it includes about 3,000 troops. 
who continue to face uh, the artillery and the snipers. Um, and I, Ambassador Herbst, your testimony was, in many respects, uh, uh, the most powerful for me because you're talking about what's really going on on that contact line and the number of Russian officers who are involved, the number of tanks, artillery uh, is, I mean, it's overwhelming. It's amazing that the Ukrainians have been able to push back as they have. We've got to help them, not because we want war, but because we want peace. The one question I would have for you all that you didn't really talk about was the Kirsch Straits and what happened in November and these 24 sailors and what are we going to do about it? And, you know, do you recommend additional sanctions? Um, uh, I think... Uh, that's what Herbst you talked about, maybe an additional company to be sanctioned. Um, I would tell you President Zelensky emphasized that a lot, and I know that he's, micro, he is, he is focused like a laser on, on that issue. It was a flagrantly illegal attack. There's no question about it. They were not near Russian territorial waters. I think the United Nations has not been nearly um, as aggressive as it should be in pushing back. Uh, I think we move too, too slowly. I think NATO moves much too slowly. What should the U.S., NATO, uh, this U.N. Law of the Sea Tribunal came out just before I was there uh, last month and was very clear that this is an illegal act and the sailors must be returned. What more can we do? How can we actually make this happen? And shouldn't, Ambassador Volker, this be a precondition to even negotiations with, with Russia on any kind of a peaceful settlement of the Donbass? Uh, well, if I may, Senator, thank you very much for your comments and, and for that question as well. And to address a few of the things you said, first off, uh, I agree with you. I think uh, the provision of security assistance to Ukraine is vitally important. I think it has had an impact uh, both psychologically as well as militarily on the professionalization and the capacity of the Ukrainian forces. I think it's also important that Ukraine reciprocate with uh, foreign military purchases from us as well, and I know that they intend to do so. In terms of priorities, I think the anti-sniper systems that were pro provided through uh, foreign military financing were very important. The anti-tank javelin missiles, also very important. And as we look ahead, we need to look at air defense, at coastal defense, at maritime picture, um, coastal capabilities. So all of them very important. Second thing, um, I want to call attention to NATO's decision at the ministerial meeting that took place here in Washington on a Black Sea strategy because I think that was also, uh, it was a U.S. initiative to talk about this. Other countries picked it up. And it's very important that NATO be present in the Black Sea, that it support freedom of navigation, that it provide a, a fabric of port calls and engagement with Ukraine uh, and other states in the region. If you, if you look around, you've got um, NATO allies, three of them, Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. You've got two partner countries, Georgia and Ukraine, uh, that are all Black Sea littoral states. So it is not by any means a Russian lake, and I think it's important that NATO stand up to make clear that all of us have an interest in the freedom of navigation, the open access, uh, the economic development of the region, and the security of the region. Uh, in terms of the Kerch Straits, uh, we have raised at every juncture the importance of Ukraine releasing these sailors. In the letter I sent to uh, my Russian counterpart last uh, week or two weeks ago, uh, I mentioned it again. Uh, it's critical that Russia do that. As you said, it was an illegal seizure of the vessels and the sailors, and there's no justification for continuing to hold them. Uh, as far as engaging the Russians, uh, I think that we have a balance sheet right now where there is nothing going well. 
if you look at Syria, if you look at Venezuela, if you look at North Korea, if you look at Iran, if you look at nuclear issues, you look at Ukraine, you look at Georgia, there's really nothing on the positive side on a ledger. And I think that is a dangerous situation to have generally, and even more dangerous if we are not going to be talking with Russia at all. Uh, so I think it's important that we, we do both. We keep the pressure up, calling attention to the Ukrainian sailors and demanding their immediate release, and that we also be willing to talk with Russia if there's an opportunity because of the seriousness of all the problems we have. Senator Murphy. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you all. Thank you very much for uh, being here. Um, I, I was one of the longtime skeptics of providing additional lethal aid to Ukraine, in part because uh, from the beginning, um, this appeared to me ultimately to be um, as much or more a political problem than it was a military problem. And I think it's important when we have these meetings to define what the Russian objectives are um, so that we can tailor a solution uh, to try to counter those objectives. And, and so, um, Ambassador Volkov, i just ask that simple question. My impression is that Russia has never and does not to this day want to militarily own all of Ukraine, that they want to destabilize the country to a point that ultimately they can reinstall a client government or a friendly government in Kyiv to be back into their uh, umbrella, as, as was the case prior to the Maidan. That doesn't mean that military assistance isn't vital. Um, it means, though, that if their ultimate goal is the, po is the political um, conquest of Ukraine rather than the military conquest of Ukraine, it should probably inform the way in which we're spending money. Is my assumption about Russian aims wrong? Well, Senator, that's an excellent question. I know your assumption is not wrong about Russian objectives, but I do have a different perspective on how we go about addressing Russia's policies here. Uh, I agree with you that Russia has a political objective of dominance over the entire country of Ukraine. It is using military force as a means of putting pressure on Ukraine toward that objective. I therefore think it's very important that we provide military assistance to Ukraine to help make sure that Russian strategy does not work, that they are not able to increase their military pressure in any effective way. This gives Ukraine time, space, confidence, and resilience so that they can withstand uh, that pressure from Russia and not succumb to the political objectives that Russia has. So I think there is a political component, there's an economic component, there's an anti-corruption component to our strategy, but I do believe that military assistance for the resilience of Ukraine is a vital component as well. I, I, don't, I don't deny that. I think my, my query is whether we have um, the allocation between the military spending, which is not simply only in the NDAA, it's also the $4 billion per year that we are spending on a broader European defense initiative that arises out of this, versus other forms of support for the Ukrainian regime. And, and, I, and I guess I'll give this sort of a different version of this question to Dr. Uh, Polyakova, because you've thought a lot about these other means by which Ukraine has to develop capacities to fight back against political interference, whether it be cyber attacks, disinformation, um, or the ways in which American aid can help ease the transition to economic reform. I mean, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that we could talk about a, about using our financial largesse to try to incentivize uh, economic reforms instead of just handing instead of focusing only primarily on military aid. So are we doing enough in those other sectors right now and what more can we be doing? 
Thank you for that question, Senator. I, I fully uh, believe that our military support for Ukraine should be one part of a much broader full-spectrum strategy to ensure Ukraine's sovereignty, to ensure Ukraine's continued democratic, democratic progress. Um, I will note one thing, though. If we look back at Georgia as an example, what we see there today is that there is no steady, quote-unquote, border between the occupied territories and the Georgian government-controlled territories. What we see is a slow creep, almost on a daily basis, of that contact line. And in fact, that is likely we would see in Ukraine um, if we uh, pull back some of our support. And in some ways, the Russian activities in the Sea of Azov uh, that focus on basically economically strangling the Ukrainian ports there, Mariupol and Berdansk, is a, a desire to achieve what the Russians were not able to achieve militarily by land, which was to take over the southeastern Ukraine line and to have a land pass directly to Crimea. They failed at that primarily because Ukrainians stood their line with U.S. military uh, support. Um, on the political side, um, I mentioned in my testimony that we should continue to, to impose conditionality on any further assistance programs, and we should think through in a much more uh, say focused way what that actually means. Uh, the reason why Ukraine has been able to achieve what's been able to achieve the last five years in terms of economic reforms, uh, anti-corruption reforms, energy reforms, is because of the so-called sandwich model, where you have pressure from the top, including from the United States and other international institutions, and pressure from the bottom from civil society. So it should be our intention to make sure those civil society actors remain, to put the pressure on the new Ukrainian government to do the right thing, and that we continue to impose conditionality on top um, and loans for reforms, right? This is basically the model that I think we should follow, and I do think it's critical to continue to invest in U.S. presence through uh, the European uh, Deterrence Initiative uh, to send a signal to Moscow that they cannot continue on this creep. I, I guess my, my, my question is whether loans for reform is an effective enough tool moving forward. And if we admit that we're going to spend billions of dollars in the region on military aid, why aren't we having a conversation about spending some of that money um, other than through loans, through direct grants for other mechanisms as well? Um, I want to squeeze in one uh, additional question, um, and that's back to you, um, uh, Ambassador Volker. I thought um, Chairman Johnson raised uh, an important point about the need for patriotism, especially at a moment today where there is a difficult um, transition of power. Uh, and obviously, we don't require um, a regular agreement in this body to, um, uh, as a measure of the health of our democracy. We fight in democracies, and that's OK. But there are some pretty powerful members of the opposition. Um, in Ukraine today, and a very new, um, inexperienced uh, president. Uh, what are the, what are our expectations of the opposition? What are the ways in, in, in which you know, we expect them to cooperate, and what are the ways in which we expect that they would exercise legitimate opposition? What, what are the ways in which they might cross that boundary um, that, we would, that we should be watchful for? Um, well, well, thank you. I think that's, that's a great framing question, because D democracy, is, as you know, as an elected official, is a competitive process rather than a consensus-based process. People are competing to see the realization of their ideas. And I think what we expect from the opposition 
is to stand for principles and policies that will advance the interests of all of Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, and to hold the government to account, hold the president to account, if he is not doing that, to, to be competitive in a way that lifts up the country. That has not always been the case in Ukraine. Uh, we've seen uh, people in the Rada acting on behalf of private interests and a great deal of corruption in the country and not really changing the country sufficiently to advance the interests of the people. There is a fresh opportunity with this Rada election that uh, we are going through right now. It will produce a very different Rada, very different members of the parliament than has been the case up to this point. And I, I do hope that they play a different kind of role than what we have seen historically as one holding the, the government to account. If I may add two additional points, uh, one of them is on U.S. assistance uh, and the broader package there. Uh, we do provide a great deal of other assistance as well. It is not purely military, um, including through AID, including an anti-corruption reform, including economic reform. But the real big ticket of economic assistance is coming from the IMF and to some degree also from the European Union in helping Ukraine with a fundamentally difficult budgetary problem. And this therefore gives leverage as well. That is impo it's important that we work with the IMF and the European Union to establish the uh, parameters by which that assistance is given so that Ukraine is doing what it needs to do to advance the right kinds of reforms. And my second point in that area, if I can take the opportunity to bring it up, is uh, we often talk about corruption in Ukraine as the problem. And to be sure, it is a problem. But I also believe that corruption is really a symptom of a bigger problem, uh, which is the oligarchic system itself, where a handful of people have disproportionate control over so many levers of power in the country. And I think that there is an opportunity with the new president and with the new parliament to pursue an aggressive effort to uh, implement antitrust legislation to break up holdings and in doing so create competition. Uh, and this might be something that is done in coordination with the US, the EU and the IMF and uh, might be something in which we uh, make the resources and that kind of assistance contingent upon even more far reaching uh, reform in this area than has been the case to date. And that connects back to your first point about the legitimate role of the opposition to protect the interests of the country rather than the interests Absolutely. of the Absolutely. Right, exactly right, Senator. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I ask the statement that I have be included in the record at this time. Without objection. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I uh, appreciate you holding this hearing. Uh, ahead of last December's G20 meeting, uh, President uh, Trump said he would not meet with President Putin until Russia released the Ukrainian ships and sailors that it illegally detained in the Kerr Strait. Russia still holds those 24 sailors on the ships. Yet President Trump said uh, last week that he will meet with Putin at the upcoming G20 summit. Now, that is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, if, if the president is clear and unequivocal about the remarks he makes to Putin uh, on this, as well as other things, including our elections. Uh, uh, Ambassador Herbs, what should President Trump, I'm not gonna ask him, Ambassador Volker, because that would put him in a difficult position. Not that I'm adverse to that, but in any event. Uh, uh, what should President uh, Trump be saying to President Putin uh, about the, not only the sailors, but the ongoing occupation of Crimea, the conflict in the Donbass, well, what is the statement that he should be making to him, both privately as, as well as publicly? I think that the policies of the administration 
vis-a-vis Russia and vis-a-vis Ukraine have been sound policies, meaning um, the sanctions on, on Kremlin for its aggression, the important decision on supplying javelins to Ukraine. It would be wonderful if when the president saw Putin, he were to say to him things that were reflected completely the policy of the administration. The fact that that has not happened in the past has raised confusion and other feelings as well, which I think you're well aware of. So again, from my standpoint, if when he sees Putin, he were to say unequivocally, as he has said at certain points, you know, Mr. Putin, I can't improve relations with you until you stop your aggression in Ukraine. That would be a good thing for him to say. In fact, to say not just privately, but also publicly. Mm-hmm. Now, the sanctions on Russia, and I've been in the Arctic a fair number of those, uh, but the ones following the curse uh, attack were very late. They were weak, and they were clearly ineffective. Uh, the fact of the matter is the sailors are still in detention. It's abundantly clear that President Putin uh, will keep interfering with the affairs of sovereign states such as Ukraine, unless the rest of the world firmly and strongly pushes back. I appreciate, Ambassador Hurst, that in your uh, statement you talked about the legislation that Senator Graham and I have introduced, the Defending American Security from Kremlin Aggression Act, a DASCA, as we call it, would increase economic, political, and diplomatic pressure on the Russian government in response to its malign activities in Ukraine and around the world. The provisions, including sanctions on the 24 FSB sailors deemed complicit in the Kursk Strait attack, sanctions on Russia's shipbuilding sector if Russia violates freedom of navigation in the Kursk uh, Strait or anywhere else in the world. That's a hard-hitting sanction. And I came in at the tail end of Mr. Carafano, uh, 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 I guess in response to some question, talking about sanctions. Uh, My view is that we only have a handful of peaceful diplomacy tools at our disposal. The use of our aid and trade to induce countries and leaders to act in a certain way. International opinion to the extent that a country and or a leader is actually subjective to that. And then the denial of aid, trade, and access to our financial institutions as a consequence to move them in a different direction. Other than that, after 27 years of foreign policy work, I haven't figured out what other foreign peaceful diplomacy tools we have. Now, Russia uses its military in pursuit of its foreign policy objectives. That's something we do not do. So in light of that, uh, shouldn't we be passing something like DASCA to ultimately force back, keeping all the elements of the stool together, I'm all for that, the energy side, the diplomacy side, and all of that. But shouldn't, I think Putin only understands strength at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, having real consequences in the sanctions, particularly in some sectors of the Russian economy, uh, I think would be very significant. What's your views on that? Um, I think Congress has played an essential positive role overall in our policy towards Russia and Ukraine, but particularly in the sanctions area. What, what you folks did in the summer of 2017 was absolutely critical, and I salute you for it. Uh, I spoke positively of the legislation you and Senator Graham introduced, and I think it, has, it would have a positive impact now. I think that uh, for whatever reasons, uh, congressional uh, encouragement is necessary 
both to move um, Washington and, for that matter, in a very in a less direct way, but still a real way, Brussels in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Ambassador Volker, why aren't we doing this? Uh, well, Senator, first whether, of all, whether it be by legislative action, I don't hold you responsible for that, but certainly some of these things could be pursued by the administration separately of legislative action. Yes, and that's exactly what I was going to say too, Senator, so thank you. I, I think the administration has increased sanctions periodically over time throughout the course of the administration. We are in a stronger position now with more pieces of the puzzle referenced than before. We have Crimea, we have Minsk, we have the Kurt Strait now, we have the elections, we have... Um, the Skripal, so there's been a growth of sanctions against Russia. Um, spe uh, speaking just from my experience, um, I've always seen comp uh, a, a difference of view between various administrations, not only this one, and the Congress as to who should be in the driver's seat on sanctions. It's always a question as to you know how much uh, leeway the administration has in implementation versus how much the Congress wants to But shouldn't to we be doing more? You just listed all of the reasons that Russia deserves a firmer yes. response. And the simple question is, shouldn't we be doing more? Yeah, uh, we have been doing more, and I believe we will continue to do more. And well, yes, let me I ask you this. Uh, when I uh, was the chairman of this committee, I offered the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, uh, and I mm -hmm. advocated then with President Obama to robustly help the Ukrainians. And now, uh, in response to Russia's illegal actions in the Kerch Strait, I called on the administ this administration to increase security assistance to Ukraine, including providing lethal maritime assistance and weapons and to assist Ukraine's efforts to improve its maritime domain awareness. Have we, the United States, taken any steps to increase its support for Ukraine's security? Uh, we have, uh, and we appreciate the appropriation that has been made by Congress, uh, $250 million in FMF for this year. The Pentagon is moving forward with that. There was just an announcement today of how we're going to deal with 125 million of that. Uh, and the priorities that you listed, maritime domain awareness, uh, coastal defense, air defense, those are very much the priorities that are under discussion between us and the Ukrainians right now. One quick question. I understand the armed forces of Ukraine are in need of mobile army surgical hospitals or MASH units, uh, and that the U.S. Uh, armed forces have older MASH units that are not currently in use. Have we considered transferring those, uh, some of those unused mass units to the government of Ukraine? I don't know the specific would answer you, to that. I'd be happy to, to track it down. Uh, there's no reason why we wouldn't. Okay. Uh, would you get we back are, to me? Because yes. if we want people to fight for their own country, one of the things we have to do is take, uh, they have to be taken care of. Absolutely. Uh, at the end of the day. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, if I, if I may have one more moment. Absolutely. Thank you. La last question. I heard your answer about President Zelensky. I hope, you, I hope that's where we're headed. But uh, I know he came into office on a strong anti-corruption platform, but there are concerns about his connections to certain Ukrainian oligarchs. You talked about the whole challenge of oligarchs in the Ukraine as an undermining element, and particularly to Igor Kolomnitsky, who was under suspicion of stealing money from a bank he co-owned. Uh, President Zelensky has denied that uh, Kolomnitsky, uh, who owned the TV station that aired his comedy show, or any other oligarch controls him. Is, is that the view of the State Department? Well, I think the view is that uh, President Zelensky has said all of the right things. 
He doesn't have the power in his hands right now to do what he has said he will do. He has zero votes in the RADA right now. We believe that he deserves the benefit of the doubt, and we want to stand by the principles and the policies of reform and fighting uh, the domination of the Ukrainian political system by oligarchs such as Kolomoisky. Uh, we hope to, uh, that he is able to amass the independence and to execute what he says he will do. And it's our intention to be both helpful and to hold him to account if he doesn't. I'll be looking at the accountability aspect. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Volker, good to see you again. I wanted to talk about uh, illicit coal exports for, for a second. Ukraine's minister for temporarily occupied territories and internally displaced persons recently stated, quote, Ukraine's aware of Russia's scheme for smuggling coal illegally mined from a part of the occupied Donbass to the ports of different countries. Uh, the coal is reportedly being transported from eastern Ukraine across the border to Russia, where it's repackaged and relabeled and then sent to Europe. Uh, I'm concerned by the reports detailing the illegal sale of millions of dollars of sanctioned coal from the Ukrainian breakaway regions, often using Russian businessmen as proxies and as intermediaries. So could you just share, is, is, the, is the administration currently investigating this trade in coal, the, the mechanisms used to introduce it into the international market and the individuals involved in this illicit trade? Uh, Senator Barroso, if, uh, if I may, I'd like to uh, offer to get back to you with any specifics on that. Uh, but I could say that I uh, share the assessment that this is what's happening. Russia has occupied the areas, and then uh, a number of people with connections are getting access to resources, repackaging, relabeling, trying to make a profit out of this. Uh, Russia is not investing in the Donbass. So they're not building new things, they're not fixing mines. A lot of things have gone into disrepair, but to the extent that they are able to extract from there, yes, indeed, it's our perception they're doing so. And then uh, also for uh, Ambassador Volker, as well as uh, Ambassador Herbst, if I could please, the, uh, I'm talking about Germany's efforts with regard to Ukraine and specifically Nord Stream 2, which uh, you know I believe is you know it's Putin's pipeline. It's, it's a German trap, I, I believe. It's a, and, but you know, when, a year ago, uh, when meeting with Ukrainian President Poroshenko, Chancellor Merkel said, she said, I made very clear that a Nord Stream 2 project is not possible without clarity on the future transit role of Ukraine. So, you know, what guarantees is, 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 is Germany seeking? What actions has Germany taken to ensure that Gazprom continues to export gas through Ukraine? Could you just kind of talk about that topic and your thoughts on it? Oh, you're right, Senator that Chancellor Merkel has said that Russia should guarantee a substantial flow of gas through Ukraine, even as Nord Stream 2 goes into operation. Uh, but Moscow has basically been flouting this requirement of the Chancellor in a very public way for the last several months. Um, both President, excuse me, both Prime Minister Medvedev, the Russian Prime Minister, and the Energy Minister Novak have said that yes, they're happy to do this, to send gas through Ukraine, first, if the economic conditions are viable, and that's a reasonable condition, but also if Ukraine, uh, excuse me, Gazprom in Russia and Naftahaz in Ukraine have no more issues on their bilateral agenda. That's a completely unacceptable condition because what they want, they want the Ukrainian firm Naftahaz to give up this court settlement it has won, which will cost Gazprom billions of dollars. And they've also insisted, this is Medvedev's words, that, quote, Ukraine must be stable for this to happen. And we know that the Kremlin characterizes, unfairly, Ukraine is unstable. So Moscow has shown 
that has no interest in meeting this, the, the chancellor's condition. One more point. Multiple times over the past several months, Russian officials have told Western and, East and Central European governments that the gas flow through Ukraine's pipeline from Russia will end at the, on December 31st this year. So the point is zero progress, and in fact, I would say regression on this issue. And so far, we've seen no reaction from Germany. Ambassador Volker, anything you'd like to add to that? Well, I, I agree with John's assessment on that. I think that uh, Germany has recognized in some ways that its pursuit of Nord Stream 2 puts Ukraine in a difficult position. It has therefore tried a few things, such as negotiating with Russia a guaranteed amount of gas transit. Uh, Russia has no interest in this, and Germany is kind of in a quandary that they, they want to pursue the project for their own reasons, and yet at the same time they know some of the consequences of it. Uh, I do believe also it's appropriate that we continue to put pressure on it because it's not just us, but many countries in Europe are concerned about this development, especially those in Central and Eastern Europe that would be more vulnerable to Russian pressure if it goes forward. You know, one of the things a number of us are trying to do is put that pressure on through a, some legislation called the Escape Act. And uh, because President Trump and the administration do continue to raise concerns about Russia's Nord Stream 2. Uh, the, the, the Escape Act does a number of things. It's something we've recently introduced. It directs the U.S. permanent representative to NATO to encourage NATO member states to work together to achieve energy security. Uh, it creates a transatlantic energy strategy focused on increasing the energy security of our NATO allies and partners and increasing American energy exports to those countries. Uh, it requires the Secretary of Energy to expedite approval of natural gas exports to NATO allies. Uh, it authorizes mandatory U.S. sanctions on the development of Russian energy pipeline projects such as Nord Stream 2. And, and I think, uh, Ambassador Walker, you and I have talked about this in the past at the McCain Institute when we, on, on, this, on this whole topic. You know, do you support efforts to enhance our allies' energy security and reduce the threat poses to NATO uh, countries, and I'd ask that you'd look at this legislation. If you have some additional thoughts on ways we can even strengthen it, we'd appreciate your efforts. Okay, I, I will be happy to take that on board. I can't comment on the specifics of the legislation, but the principles behind what you're saying are exactly where the administration is. You may have seen President Trump's meeting with President Duda uh, this past week, in which he was very outspoken on, on this issue. He's very concerned about Europe increasing its dependence on uh, Russian gas as opposed to decreasing it and looking for ways to, to work with Europe and incentivize Europe to open that up more, whether that is through US LNG and Secretary Perry, who's the, obviously the lead in our delegation going to Ukraine, or uh, generally, it doesn't have to be American gas, but it is making sure that Europe maintains its own freedom of decision uh, so that it is not creating a situation of political compromise with respect to Russia. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Brasso. Um, you know, one of the things I'm concerned uh, dealing with so many Eastern Central European countries that uh, aren't part of the EU, aren't part of NATO, uh, I've, I've, I think we've all seen the positive effect, the positive influence of their attempting to join these organizations. They, they're able to enact reforms uh, that they wouldn't be able to enact otherwise. We just saw that with North Macedonia and their, the Presbury Agreement with Greece. Uh, if we don't have that capability, uh, I think I think you all agree with the fact that uh, Ukraine should move toward eventual NATO membership. Is that correct or incorrect? Absolutely, and that, that is the policy of the administration. You know, th there's certainly some voices in America, I don't agree, that uh, are concerned about that. You know, why would we want to 
obligate ourselves to come to the defense of some of these smaller countries. We, we were in uh, Munich for the, the security conference, and we met with the Secretary General, uh, Jens Stoltenberg. And, and it, one of the members raised that issue, that devil advocate uh, position, and the Secretary General said, we want to enlarge, enlarge NATO because a larger NATO is just good. It's a defensive alliance. It, it, it literally threatens no one. Um, so again, I just want to get on the, on the record. You all agree that we should be moving forward and, and cooperate with these, these nations that want to join the European Union, want to join NATO. Mem uh, NATO. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing. It, it helps them provide reforms. Anybody want to comment on that? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Uh, I'll be a little more expansive if it's okay, Senator. Sure. Um, but the, the great thing about NATO is that it is an alliance of free countries that are banding together to provide collective defense and that deters attacks against them. And that creates a secure space in which people are able to govern themselves as democracies without threat from outside. There's no reason why that should apply only to some people in Europe and not other people in Europe. If everybody shares the same values and everybody faces security threats, why should it not be the case that all people have the same opportunity? That's been the basis of NATO's uh, policy on enlargement uh, since the time that it first became possible after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, NATO has always insisted, and the U.S. has insisted, that countries be ready. They have to meet the standards of doing so. And so we went through a long period of time, 10 years from the fall of the Berlin Wall till when Poland first uh, acquired NATO membership 20 years ago. Uh, I think Ukraine still has work to do. Others still have work to do. But the direction on this and the principles behind it have to be crystal clear. So again, NATO is a defensive alliance. I do believe you achieve peace through strength. I, I am highly concerned about our what I would consider weak response to the Kurt Strait uh, aggression. Um, I, I've led two resolutions. Uh, one we passed last Congress. This one uh, we passed the Foreign Relations Committee trying to get attached to the NDAA. I think, I think we have over 60 Senate sponsors uh, calling for the United States to lead a strong multinational uh, freedom navigation operation to pre-position maritime assets in, in the Black Sea. Um, I know a number of you mentioned this in, in your uh, testimony. Some of you want to comment on, on how what we really should do. I mean, how strong should our our response be as a mil not, not a kinetic military response, but a military show of strength to keep the Black Sea and the CAs off open navigation? Because that's obviously what uh, Putin's strategy is: is squeezing off those ports and really uh, taking control of the Black Sea. Uh, Mr. Yep. Carafano. Well. First of all, I would say from a military perspective, and I, I listed several of these in my prepared remarks, that the number one uh, objective, particularly in military assistance now with Ukraine, is building up their maritime capacity. I think that's clear. Um, how, how many ships do they lose when Russia illegally annexes? Three, right? Three, yeah. Um, I mean, they have virtually no capacity to either have awareness of their own maritime domain or to conduct any law enforcement or operations in that domain. So I, mean, I don't think that's a, a big stretch here. I mean, their capacity is near zero, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think building up that capacity rapidly and kind of taking that open space that we've created for the Russians off the table and making it a more competitive space for the Ukrainians, we've seen the impact that's had in the land domain. And I think the sea domain is, is you know, as, as you know, as bad a problem they have in air defense, that's a that's a bigger problem. But but in, in the maritime domain, there's a, a gap that can be closed 
relatively quickly. But in conjunction with that, it's not just important about capacity building for Ukraine. It is important about NATO op and partner operations in the Black Sea area and having a sustained, it doesn't have to be a permanent, but a, ro a sustained naval presence that the Russians have to take account for within the context of what can be done both in the NATO environment and what can be done bilaterally with our partners in the region. Uh, Senator Shaheen has a couple of questions, and I'll close it out. I, I, I actually have a bunch. I'll keep you here for a little bit longer. Um, well, I just wanted to follow up on Senator Johnson's question about what might have been a more aggressive response in the Black Sea, or more robust response in the Black Sea is probably a better way to put it in this Kirch um, Strait. And that is, what kind of a message does it send to other adversaries of the United States who are watching our response on an issue like this um, to, for example, what's happening with Iran in the Strait of Hormuz? And can you talk about whether there is a connection and how important it is to have some kind of a consistent policy in response to these kinds of incidents? Can, can I just make one short, short comment and I'll turn to my colleagues? I think the, the great sin was not the response. The great sin was we knew this was coming. We knew the Russians were prepping for this. We had months and months notice, and yet we were deer in the headlights when it actually happened. That was a sin. I would contrast that with what just happened in the Gulf because the administration actually knew what was coming and they pre-positioned assets and capabilities to deal with it before it happened. And I think in the Ukraine where when we stop Putin in one place, he's just gonna look for something else. That the, the real challenge for Kurt and the administration is we need to be constantly having situational awareness so we recognize where the next Russian poke in the eye is coming from and we have a response in place to deal with that before we get poked. I think fortunately to follow up on um, my colleagues' comments, the Russians do make it relatively easy for us to know where the next poke is coming because um, the incident in, in November uh, in the Kerch Strait was preceded by months of harassment of commercial vessels, um, detentions by the Russian FSB. Uh, and so we knew that when, and we continue to know that when the Russians are basically testing the waters, um, in this case literally, and then when they see no response, they know they can move forward. And that's exactly what happened in November. And I th the fact that we waited uh, three months to impose any sort of costs as weak as they were, meaning the sanctions that the U.S. coordinated with our allies on March 15th, sent a very clear message that this is not a priority to the United States, and it's not a priority to the Western alliance. Uh, and I think in terms of setting a precedent, that's absolutely uh, the right way to think about this, Senator, in my view. Uh, certainly other authoritarian regimes, including China, not just Iran, um, who have grander aspirations for territory, are observing very closely how the West responds to Russian aggression in Ukraine. Think of uh, China's aspirations in the South China Sea, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan. Uh, there's no question to my mind that authoritarian regimes are learning from our inaction and our lack of resolve, and that sets a very dangerous precedent. Ambassador Herbs. I just want to enlarge on that a little bit. Uh, Jim correctly pointed out that we were ready in the Gulf. But while Russia, in my judgment, under Putin, is the greatest immediate danger to our national security, the longer-term danger is China. And in fact, so we were very weak with the Straits of Kerch incident. Um, I think we've not been as strong as we could be regarding China's island-building activity in the South China Sea. So I suspect 
looking at this as a Chinese policymaker might, they see reluctance in confronting Russia there in the, in the Sea of Azov, or rather the Straits of Kerch. Yeah, they, they went after Iran, but Iran's a second or a third-rate power. They've also been a little bit weak in coming after us, the Chinese, in the South China Sea. So in that sense, it's, very, it's a very bad precedent. So Ambassador Volker, do you want to defend our lack of action? In, uh, uh, well, I, th I agree with you, Senator, that it's very important that we have a uh, tempo of activity. Uh, I did go to Ukraine in the end of February. Uh, I, I helped push for, and then we had the visit of the USS Donald Ross, a guided missile destroyer to Odessa, and I wanted to go and make sure that this attracted some visibility. Uh, we have increased the, the tempo of U.S. presence in the Black Sea. And I think significantly, we have also gone to NATO and urged uh, NATO establish a strategy for a greater presence in the Black Sea. But I agree with you that more cannon should be done. That this, this should be the uh, sense of the beginning, but should by no means be the end of what we see as possible. Well, thank you all very much for um, your very important testimony today and your continued action in Ukraine. We very much appreciate what you're doing. And Mr. Chairman, thank you for holding this important hearing. Well, thank you, Senator Shaheen. I was just been had a note. I don't have time to ask you all these questions. So uh, I, I may submit some for the record, but you know, one of the things, and I think we'll probably hold a hearing on this, is an evaluation of sanctions. What are the most effective? Uh, what are not effective? What, what maybe do harm, more harm than good? I think that's something we really do need to evaluate. Um, I would like to explore a little bit more in terms of the, the economy of, of Ukraine, the oligarch control, what Ukraine needs to do to move past the era of the oligarchs. And by the way, I think President Zelensky might be in perfect position to do that. But l let me just kind of end the hearing on a more positive note. Um, the improvement in terms of the, mil the Ukrainian military, I mean, that came through in your testimony. That's, that's a, a pretty good thing that they've been able to hold off Russian aggression uh, it'd be nice if we could stop it and reverse it, but uh, that's in the future. And then just Ukraine's economic potential. It is enormous. If they can shed the, the corruption, if they can abide by the rule of law, I mean, Ukraine can just be, you know, the breadbasket of, of uh, Europe and has such great potential. So it really is about America supporting the Ukrainian people. Their courage that they showed in the Maidan, their, with their votes for President Poroshenko and now with the President Zelensky. And let me end on this note. Dur during President Poroshenko's inauguration, the, the comment I made to him is, you have the opportunity to be Ukraine's George Washington. His reaction was, wow, he hadn't really thought of that. And I meant it from the standpoint of being the father of his country to, to enact those very important reforms I think you play it forward the way he behaved in the transition of power. And that might have been the most important thing that George Washington did for this nation, but I think the most important thing that President Poroshenko did for his nation, a peaceful transition of power. And again, I'll, I'll just you know, reaffirm what I told those legislators from the Ukrainian uh, parliament. It is so important that they act as patriots and they come together uh, to, to really rid their country of the corruption, enact that rule of law so it can realize its full potential. So again, I just want to thank all of you for your excellent testimony, uh, both written and oral, and uh, uh, this will be continued uh, because it's so important for America to support the Ukrainian people. With that, uh, the hearing record will remain open for the submission of statements or questions until the close of business on Thursday, June 20th. This hearing is adjourned. <laughs>